The Apostle Paul said something very significant. It's all significant. Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Jesus said in Matthew, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Those are a couple of verses you just kind of wish they weren't there. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that hurts. Because we all have moments we don't want to forgive. There are times we think there's someone who just doesn't deserve it, and they may not. We're not taught by Christ that we forgive those who deserve it. We're not taught that we forgive those who asked for it. In Luke chapter 7, there's this wonderful story of forgiveness and what Jesus has in mind when we talk about forgiving one another. Luke 7 at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman, so she had a reputation obviously, when a certain immoral woman brought from the city brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now perhaps he mumbled this, this Pharisee. Maybe he, maybe he just kind of mumbled that to the guy next to him across the table. He might have said, you know, if Jesus knew, if he was really God, I mean, if he's really a prophet, he would know about this woman touching him. He would know. Jesus, one way or the other, knew what he was thinking. And he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon said, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. Do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, which was customary. But she's washed them with her own tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the common courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. I tell you, her sins, Jesus said, and, and they're many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. 
Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A pastor that I uh, follow, uh, followed through the years, written a book on the book of Luke. He provides this really concise description of this text. Jesus has been invited to the home of a religious leader, a Pharisee named Simon. The Pharisees were a sect of about 6,000 people in the times of Christ who studied and taught the law of Moses. They were experts in the law. Even Jesus would call them that. Three times in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees invite a Pharisee or several invite Jesus over for dinner. And then after the death and resurrection of Jesus, several of the Pharisees actually became followers of Christ. The apostle Paul is one of those. We assume that Simon just wants a closer look at Jesus. He's stirring things up. He's offering something in the religious world that had never been offered before, and it felt like cheap grace. It felt like we're shortchanging God. You can't possibly know God and, and know so little intellectually. So maybe Simon invited him over because he said, I'm, I, I need to really figure out who this guy is. We need to keep an eye on him. He's stirring up some problem here. We better keep track of him. What's he up to? What are his plans? Why is he disrupting the obvious status quo of religion? In those days when you were invited to a person's home for dinner, there were customary kind gestures that would provide a proper greeting and welcome to that home. And the neglect of this being done for Jesus was obvious and intentional. It's Simon kind of saying, don't give him too much here until we have a chance to really figure out what he's all about, what he's trying to do. So he snubbed, basically. Jesus was not treated as a, an invited, welcomed guest. And many people would have said, well, if that's how you feel about me, I'll just leave. Jesus didn't leave. He understood it. He knew it was coming. And the Pharisees were in constant conflict with Jesus because he seemed to be this spiritual lightweight. That was the problem. You can't be that kind of people. You can't hang around the people this man hangs around and be, be a person of great spiritual depth. So he was kind of viewed as a, a lightweight, forgiving the worst of people who didn't deserve to be forgiven, giving friendship to those who had no friends. Certainly he did not. Certainly he did not offer forgiveness to those who didn't deserve it, but he did. Some of the harshest words spoken by Jesus were spoken to the Pharisees. Let me just go to Matthew 23, just to give you a, a glimpse. It's a lengthy passage. I'm not gonna read all of it, but let me just give you a, a, an idea of how Jesus really felt about the Pharisees. Matthew 23. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. 
on their arms. They wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the head table and at banquets and the, the seats of honor in the synagogue. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Oh, they love that stuff. And then he says, but what sorrow, in verse 13, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? What sorrow awaits you? Hypocrites you are, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let the others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisee, you hypocrites? I don't think Jesus is candy coating anything here. I think he's being pretty direct. We know how he feels about these people. It's pretty obvious. I'm just reading what, what it said. What sorrow awaits you, you hypocrites? For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Yes, you should tithe, but you do not neglect the more important things. But don't neglect the important things. Blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I think Jesus is rather ticked. <laughs> I, just, I just love that in him. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you hypocrites, you Pharisees? You're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Outwardly, you look like religious people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's quite enough for one reading. <laughs> About that time, Simon Peter's going, He'd heard all this before. Jesus didn't say it that, around that table, but if he'd heard it, they knew what he really thought about them. They knew that he didn't have a lot of respect and admiration for them. And they knew that he had some kind of a religious experience or some kind of religion that he was offering that was really not appropriate. It wasn't like the one they were offering. So Jesus has been treated kind of like an outsider since walking through the door of Simon's home, and then a woman somehow finds her way into the house. She knew Jesus was there. She barges into the dining room full of the religious elite and goes straight to Jesus. Simon knows what kind of woman she is. He knows. Have you, have you ever been in a room where someone walks in and you know a little bit about them? You may not know them personally, but I've heard he's an alcoholic. I've heard he's an addict. I've heard he's an adulteress. I've heard he's really a thief, just will steal whatever's loose to be taken. Prostitute. Having a woman entering this banquet was not typical. But Luke does describe her as a sinner, a woman in the city. All people were sinners. They didn't all know that yet, but all people are sinners. We know that. The Bible tells us that. We all are. And we're left to kind of suppose, why'd she come looking for Jesus? Maybe she had a previous encounter with him. Maybe she was on the edge of a crowd somewhere, for, afraid to be seen, and maybe listening to what he had to say. 
Somehow he could see the guilt and shame she carried with her, and I imagine him telling a story, perhaps the story of the prodigal son. Maybe she heard that story. Maybe she was on the edge of the crowd when that was spoken. Whatever her sin, she's heard Jesus is going to be at the home of the Pharisee, and she's determined to see him. Can you imagine the courage that takes to go in front of the religious elite? She knew what they all thought about her. It was obvious, it was clear. But that one guy at the table, there's something different about him. Imagine the courage to say, I'm going for it. She has in her hand a small alabaster jar containing what was likely her most prized possession, fragrant oil of great value. A similar story is told in Mark 14 and says the oil was said to be worth a year's wages. So then Luke tells us, standing behind him at his feet, crying, she wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured oil on them. And Simon the Pharisee is shocked by what he sees. If this man were really a prophet, he'd know who she really is. He wouldn't get near her. He wouldn't let her touch him. Surely I'm not the only one in this room I'm not the only one that part of our families today around the state and around the country, around Oklahoma City. I'm not the only one, surely, that has acted like a Pharisee in some moments. Sizing somebody up. Probably don't want to be seen with them. I've had people say to me, Marty, you're a pastor. You, you probably want to hang out with that, that guy. Which is to me like saying sick him to the dog looking for steak. I'm, I'm going to go hang out with him just to make the Pharisee ticked off, you know. <laughs> She's a sinner. And how many times have we labeled someone? And it may be true. I mean, no, nobody's saying this woman was a woman that was pure and godly. She wasn't. What do you see when you look at others? Do you see their sins? Do you see their humanity? Do you see their heart? Do you know that somewhere down the road something went wrong in this person's life and they've chosen a path that is filled with disaster? Do we find ourselves judging them or having compassion on them? Do we look down on them for the clothes they may wear or the words they might speak or the sins they've committed, the life or lifestyle they lead? Or do we see them? I mean, really see them. So Jesus tells a story in Luke 7. Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I've just gone right over that through the years that study and come to these texts. But this time, it's obvious Simon sees her. He sees. But there's so much more to this. Do you see this? I mean, really see this woman. And a certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed money for 50. When they couldn't pay the lender, the lender forgave the debts of both of them. Which of them will love that lender more? Simon replied, the one who had the largest debt. That's right, Jesus said. You've judged correctly. It's what Jesus said next that really gets us. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? He points out all that she has done for him. 
as a guest at that table that the household owner did not do for him as a guest in his own home. Saints and sinners at a meal with Jesus. And by the end of the story, you kind of want to know who's the saint and who's the sinner. Do you see this woman? Simon only saw her behavior. He just saw the outward manifestation of whatever she was like. He just saw behavior. He didn't know her story. Simon had not seen her, but Jesus did see her. He saw not what she had done, but who she was as God's child and who she could become. What if we all prayed for wisdom from God to help us see beyond the surface of a person's life? What if we prayed that God would accept and give us the strength to offer grace radically and generously, to offer the grace and love of Christ to whoever we know could need it or use it or find it of help? We tend to see people through only our own human lens, clean or unclean, Christian or non-Christian, loser, druggie. The more if we prayed, God, help me see beyond the obvious. Help me see a person just as you see them. What if we offered compassion when the inclination would be to walk on by? And I'm not just talking about someone who's homeless or someone staring, standing on the corners on the streets begging for money. I'm talking about the colleague at work in the office next to yours, the person in the cubicle across the hall, or the person you're around that's confused and you know they're confused, and they just can't seem to get through the pressures of life. What if we prayed, Lord, help me see something I can't see but you see, and then show me what you think I should do here. Lord, I feel like I need to reach out to this person, so help me, show me, give me something that I will know that you, only you could do through me, on behalf of this person. Lord, help me see this person. Jesus sees all of us. He sees all of us. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. I, I, I mean, the Pharisee, I can just see it. The tension all sitting around that table. You mean you're gonna forgive everything, all the screw-ups in her life, all the miserable things she has done to herself and to others? You mean just one little, she comes in here and dotes all over you and washes your feet and anoints her with her own tears and you're gonna let her off the hook for all of it? Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Not only did Jesus see her, she saw him. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Let me tell you something. That last sentence. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I've been there. I've been here. I grew up in church. Been in church all my life. And there's been good churches. Never had a moment where I thought, the church is not for me. I grew up in a world that can't imagine the church not being there. But there are times, because I've been immersed in the church and with God's people and I love it and I'm glad we all love it too. I'm glad we're all together this morning. But there are times, whoever's been forgiven little loves little. There are times I forget that my experience isn't yours 
that my experience looks very different than others. There are people that never been inside a church, and if they ever tried it, some of them got hurt really bad, and they can't let it go, they can't forgive. They just know it's not for them. They just know they weren't welcome there. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Could it be they've been in church for so many years, they have no clue, they don't remember what it was like to walk when you're not forgiven, to turn to things to satisfy a thirsty heart or soul or mind that are doing nothing other than, than making you rot at the core. Perhaps we've been a Christ follower so long, we've forgotten what it's like when we weren't following him. And now know the difference he can make in a life that will trust him to receive his love and his kindness, his forgiveness, and then follow him. There's a warning for those of us like me who've known Jesus a long, long time. We forget what it was like before we knew him. We forget the overwhelming sense of relief that came to us when we realized we were loved unconditionally by God, forgiven, empowered to live differently. Several years ago, I came across a story that really was a powerful story. It's one of those that uh, at first glance you wonder, is this, is this really true? Do we have a journalist here maybe taking some license to sensationalize this story? And I've had, I printed it out five, six years ago and I've had it in my study and the other day I thought, I'm gonna see, what's that like today? Is that story still holding true? It's been 10 years probably. But maybe eight, nine years since I saw that article. So I thought I'd better look it up. What, they, what are they saying today? Well, it's still true. In fact, I got more facts and I wanna share that with you. Her name's Dana Kim. She now has her PhD. She had a master's degree. She worked at the University of Hawaii in recruitment, helping kids find their way into college. She grew up on the island of Maui. See, my father owned a photography studio at one time, so my earliest introduction to photography was through him. Over time, unfortunately, Dana's parents separated. Her father, she says, became absent. And she spent years bouncing between relatives' homes including a few years where she lived in parks, in cars, or with friends. I always thought of it as roughing it, so it didn't really bother me. She recalled my survival instincts were always strong. In 2003, she began a photo essay about the homeless communities. She thought this would be a good project. Maybe it was her dissertation, I'm not sure. She said, I'm gonna photograph the homeless communities around us. And she continued that and continues it to this day an advocate for the homeless. Nine years later, she's photographing the homeless and finds her father. There's a photo that's going to come up showing what he looked like when she found him. She found her father among the homeless. She was documenting and over the next few years struggling to reconnect, to break through to him, she turned her camera on the man she thought she'd lost. And when she first encountered her father on the street, he'd lost considerable weight, obviously. He didn't, recognize, he didn't recognize her. She barely could recognize him. And she calls that moment devastating. Devastating. Photographing my own father actually began as a mechanism then of protecting myself at first. 
I would raise my camera phone in front of me and almost as if that barrier would help me keep it together. It hurt to see him like this. And some days I would literally just stand there and stare downwards because I couldn't get myself to see him. My own flesh and blood. Still such a stranger to me. And many of those photographs were shot haphazardly. The photographer in me, she says, knew that these images needed to be created, that I needed to have them as a record for myself, a reminder that this was real even after I walked away. There were nights when I'd be photographing and he was nowhere to be found. On other days when she least expected it, he'd be standing at a corner, acting like he's talking to somebody but nobody's standing there. I would sit there and pray quietly, just asking for a miracle and wishing that he would accept assistance. He would refuse to get treatment, taking any medication, eat, bathe, wear new clothes, over. And I really never thought he'll get, he would ever change or get better. There were times when I figured he would die on that street. One day, he had a heart attack. And thankfully and miraculously, Another person on the street was able to call 911. He was admitted to the hospital. He was placed on proper medications. He survived the heart attack. He would eventually stabilize. His mental health conditions were addressed. Having had the heart attack truly saved his life. It gave him the opportunity to get back on a treatment plan and he's been on it ever since. I want you to see what he looks like today. because a daughter snapped the photo. She says, every day's a gift. Some days are more challenging than others, but seeing my father is a constant reminder of the strength of the human spirit and how precious life is. I never had a relationship with my father growing up and there was a lot he did and didn't do that really hurt me. But I have chosen to forgive him so we can move forward. There's a picture of the two of them together now. Daughter finds dad. <laughs> Forgiveness doesn't always mean a relationship can be restored. Forgiveness doesn't mean a friendship could be restored. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the pain in the past is over and done to be forgotten. No, no, no. Forgiveness is necessary even when it's difficult. And even when you offer forgiveness, that does not mean that the relationship could ever be maybe what it once was. It may be a relationship that has to have distance forever. It may take years to work towards someone you've already forgiven and let them off the hook. Because really, when we are withholding forgiveness, we're the ones rotting. We're the ones hurting. But I don't at all mean to say that just because we forgive means everything's going to look okay, be okay, and work out somehow. Not every story is Diana's story. So let me just wrap it up with this. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice. You decide to ask for forgiveness. You decide to offer forgiveness. And there'll be times it's difficult to do it. But Jesus doesn't leave us an option to do anything different. 
So just understand, it's a choice you will make at some point to forgive. And secondly, you cannot give away what you do not have. So I'm gonna to say to those people, maybe like me who've grown up in church, we've heard it over and over for decades. But can I really give away grace and kind of forgive in a way that I've never forgiven before for things I don't understand? And, and am I aware enough of my own sin? <laughs> am I aware, I'm self-aware here of all that I've asked God to forgive me for? You cannot give away what you do not have. Simon was conscious of the need and yet therefore felt no reason to love or receive this woman who barged into his dinner. Prodigal son story comes to mind. Older brother worked hard, did the best, loved his father, obeyed his father. He was the good son. Younger brother was a wild hare. He decided to get his inheritance and head out. And what came to him is what's typical when these kinds of things happen even today. And suddenly he says in the pig pen, you know, you know the story, he turns around, heads home. And when, when dad sees this son heading home, he starts running toward him to make sure someone else doesn't get to him first and welcome this child home, welcome this boy back home. Older brother's furious because he's a good boy. And he was. But his father said, to the older son, son, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. And he forgave the kid. Older brother, we don't know if he ever did. We don't get, it's a story Jesus told. So I think every now and then I have to ask myself, and I'm gonna ask you to do the same. I don't like being miserable all alone. Let me, let me share it with you. Every now and then I have to ask, am I being the older brother? I've been in church all my life. Am I the older brother today? That wants to remind God how good I am and what I've done and how wonderful I am. And I mean, for crying out loud, Lord, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I mean, it's your fault. I didn't plan this. I didn't want this. We cannot give away what we do not have. And the third thing I would say, you have, you have experienced forgiveness. Let me tell you, when you know you've experienced forgiveness, you've experienced forgiveness when you're eager to offer it to others. And you just can't wait to get to someone who thinks you are done with them and you say, I forgive you. And I will help you if I can. Ephesians chapter four says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Jesus said this in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. Jesus in this most painful moment, his hands and feet are nailed to a wooden cross. And even in that moment, he says, Father, they don't realize what they're doing. 
So I ask you to forgive them. Forgive them. They didn't ask for it. They didn't know they needed it. But Jesus forgave them. Gordon MacDonald once said, the past cannot be repaired without the practice of forgiveness, renouncing the right to hold charges against each other. And that is true. I've always thought if forgiveness cannot be found in the Christ-centered church, where can it be found? Today we share the bread and the cup, the same ingredients Jesus told us to use. The bread represents his body, the cup represents the blood. We take communion today to remember, to remember the sacrifice he made for us, to remember his love for us, unconditional love when we didn't even know we needed it or would want it. We remember we were forgiven. So I'm gonna close in prayer and then each room will share the bread and the cup. And then as you leave the room, remember the prayer teams will be in front of all the rooms for you to pray with. They're happy to pray with you, pray for you, for whatever may be on your mind. But for now, let's focus on the bread and the cup. Let me pray and then we will share this. Father, how we thank you so much for loving us, how we thank you so much for forgiveness you've offered to us. We thank you, Father, for helping us maybe get a wake-up call when we travel through this text that we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. And as we share the bread and cup, may we get a fresh reminder of what it's like to be forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.